We start with the new vaccination rules in the Delta School District. Isn't this interesting? The Delta School District, the first in B.C. now to require their employers, including teachers, to disclose their vaccine status. If you're unvaccinated, you'd be required to undergo regular testing to come to work. We're going to just talk about that right now. Have a listen to this. This is Val Windsor, chair of the Delta School Board, talking to Global News here. We're all about safety of staff and students. We've been following public health all along. We've um, done the distancing, the masking, all of the things that have been required. But the one thing public health continues to emphasize is the need for vaccinations. And so at this time, we decided uh, after some very lengthy consultation and a lot of information gathering to go ahead with this because we believe it's the best decision for our uh, public schools in Delta. Okay, so the way this will work, you must disclose your vaccination status. If you're unvaccinated, you would have to undergo frequent uh, rapid testing for the virus in order to go to work, or you would have to go on unpaid leave. This is the only school district in B.C. to do this, should other school districts do it too. Let's discuss now with my guest, Elizabeth Costa. She is a parent advocate and a lawyer based in Victoria. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Elizabeth, thank you for coming on again today. No problem. Good morning. Okay. What do you think of this idea? I think it's a very cost-effective, meaning it will cost the school nothing to implement this. Mm. And it's not really a vaccine mandate. So it's a half-baked improvement. They're telling the teachers that they should get vaccinated, but if they don't, they can uh, frequently test themselves to make sure they're okay to go and be in the presence of other staff and students. But if they had the student safety concern at heart and other teachers' safety concern at heart, the first thing they would do is clean the air in the school, and they've said nothing about that. Okay, so do you think that they should bring a tougher restriction on vaccinations? Do you think there should be a province-wide vaccine mandate? You have to get vaccinated or you're not not going to be teaching in BC schools? Is that what you would like to see? Absolutely. My child will not go to school at any level in BC unless they have their vaccine records in place. So why should the teachers be able to infect themselves elsewhere and bring it to the children in class? It makes no sense. On the other hand, we can all be vaccinated, but if we continue using improper masks and going into contaminated classrooms, we're all going to get sick. Okay, we just got a brand new uh, study out this morning from uh, BC Children's Hospital. They took a look at vaccination rates in BC schools, and they concluded there really hasn't there really hasn't been a whole lot of uh, COVID transmission in schools. You buying that? <laughs> Not at all. Uh, we go back to September, and uh, children brought COVID home and spread it to their parents, and likely to grandparents and neighbors. Absolutely not. The kids transmit lice and flu and colds. They also transmit COVID. Yeah, speaking of parent advocate Elizabeth Costa, should there be a vaccine mandate for all school districts in British Columbia? It's interesting to listen to the president of the teachers union on this point, Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. And they've been saying, like, look, don't do this in a kind of a patchwork fashion, district by mm-hmm. district. If you're going to bring in a vaccine mandate, you should do it for the whole province let me play a short clip here for you elizabeth of the uh, the teachers union president on this point then i'll get your thoughts terry mooring here i think there are just too many hurdles for individual districts to be able to um you know 
um, be able to deal with themselves. Okay, well, you've got at least one district has done it, Delta School District. Do you think do you think other school districts will follow suit and do the same thing, Elizabeth? I doubt it. There are school oh. districts with HEPA filters in the classroom and begging their teachers to get vaccinated. The vaccination rate among teachers is quite high, actually. The vaccination among children is low, as you know. But I think the issues have been created by our government. They told the school districts to manage themselves. So, of course, it's yeah. going to result in patchwork. Okay, we'll see if uh, if this goes any further or if Delta is the only one to do this. Elizabeth Costa, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about this incredible story in the downtown east side now. The Vancouver Coastal Health Authority now confirming cases of scammers who are paying homeless people to get the COVID vaccine for them. Unreal. Got some great guests standing by on this. First, have a listen to this report by Global BC News reporter Nitu Garcha. Calling it deplorable behavior, Vancouver Coastal Health confirming cases of people paying vulnerable members of the downtown east side community to get COVID-19 shots using the fraudster's name and health information. Now, this is a high-risk population, four times as likely to have severe outcomes from COVID-19, so health officials reduced barriers to getting vaccinated, meaning no need for a photo ID, making it easier to take advantage of the system. That's according to a source familiar with the downtown Eastside immunization effort. VCH says new measures are now in place to ensure the identity of anyone getting an immunization is confirmed. Any vaccine cards deemed to be fraudulent are being removed from the provincial immunization registry and the BC vaccine cards are being revoked. VCH not providing an exact number of cases, but says this has happened a handful of times. None of those cases were reported to Vancouver police, but they say if it's caught happening again, the health authority will forward the fraud to police for follow-up. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Nicole Mucci. Nicole is a spokesperson for the Union Gospel Mission. They do wonderful work helping the people in that community in the downtown east side. Nicole, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Okay, Nicole, what are your thoughts on this story? I think this is kind of a shocking story. It surprised a lot of people this week. What did you think when you heard it? We are just so extraordinarily discouraged that people are entering into the, the downtown east side neighborhood. Um with the intent to take advantage of our community members, it's really predatory behavior and it's abhorrent. Yeah, I mean, where there's been some reports that some people were paid $200 to go and get vaccinated using someone else's name. I mean, like, you know, the people on the streets there and the people who are in the community. I mean, we're talking like desperate people, right? In many cases. Yeah, people who are experiencing homelessness, who are experiencing substance use disorder poverty. Um, they also often have other compounding factors that we might not think about. They might have trauma and many different things that make the ability to make an informed decision a little bit more difficult than other folks. And additionally, the reality is, is that when you look at $200 for somebody who is living through dire circumstances, it's not really a choice at that point. It's a survival tactic. Yeah, like I, I don't blame, you can't blame the person on the street who's being exploited like this, I don't think. I, you got to blame the person who's, who's pulling something like this off or trying to pull a stunt like this. And do you think that should be investigated by the police? 
Yeah, I think provided we understand that the people who are responsible are those who are entering the neighborhood with this horrible um, idea to take advantage of others. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that occurs to me is what if you have someone who's so desperate for money and they agree to go along with something like this, maybe for $200, and then they turn around and maybe try to do it again to get even more money. You could have someone end up with like multiple vaccinations. That's scary. Yeah. It, it that could be one of the risks of this, of course. Yeah. And it's like we said, these are folks who are in really dire circumstances, and sometimes two hundred dollars can feel like life or death. Right, Nicole. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Okay, Nicole Mucci is a spokesperson there for Union Gospel Mission. They help the people in the downtown east side. Let's talk about the legality of this now with my guest, Sarah Lehman, lawyer at the Sarah Lehman Law Group. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Sarah. Hi there. Hi, Sarah. What do you think of this? Well, I think it's absolutely shocking. I, quite frankly, couldn't believe what I was hearing when I heard this story on the news. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so when you hear about something like this, I mean, what kind of... Is this criminal behavior? Is this like fraud? What could this potentially be in terms of under like criminal code? Yeah, it could absolutely potentially amount to a fraud allegation. Um, And again, I think it's important to point out that the people who should be properly investigated here are the people who are entering the downtown east side with a scheme to obtain what is a fraudulent vaccination card, um, not the people who are being exploited into assisting them in doing so. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, people were also exploiting a loophole in the system because the situation, as you heard in that Global News report, was on the downtown east side. You're talking about a vulnerable population of people there. They have sort of low barrier system for people to get vaccinated. So in some cases, you, you would not even have to show ID in order to get vaccinated. It sounds like they're going to tighten that up now because that's where that's the loophole maybe these scammers were exploiting here. And this is so unfortunate. Um, I worked at a nonprofit in the downtown east side for over a decade, and I can tell you that we need to make sure that that vulnerable population is able to access services particularly medical services with low or no barriers. So it's essential to make sure that they are able to get vaccinated uh, without having to you know, present a driver's license, yeah. for example. And now, as a result of these people's, quite frankly, deplorable actions, uh, we're going to have to institute further barriers to their health and safety. Yeah. Speaking to Sarah Lehman from the Sarah Lehman Law Group, uh, in a case like this, like I was kind of surprised to hear in that report that there's, this has happened a handful of times, according to the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority, but the cases have not been reported to police. And I just thought, why not? Like, this sounds like serious crime. And perhaps one of the reasons why not is the reluctance of the community in the downtown east side to approach the police. Um, you know, the relationship between the VPD and the downtown east side has been uh, fraught with difficulty over the years. And I think that some members may be reasonably concerned that the investigation could turn on them, although it shouldn't. Um, but, of course, you know, whenever you have that kind of difficult relationship between community members and police, there is some distrust there. Could this be a difficult case? Like, let's say this was investigated by the police, and we've heard that similar cases are being investigated in Edmonton, for example. Could those be difficult cases to investigate and to prove in court? 
They could, absolutely. Anytime you have a complex allegation of fraud, the evidentiary burden um, is a difficult one to discharge for Crown. So uh, I think there would be a lot of moving parts to this investigation, and you would have to have some pretty good evidence that this fraud was actually committed. Yeah, yeah. And the penalties for something like this, you know, in British Columbia, it's it's not really crystal clear what the penalty would be on, on a crime like this. But I'll tell you, there are some very severe federal penalties on this. Like if you have a fake or fraudulent vaccine card that you use to try to cross the border to go in or out of Canada, for example, you're looking at a potential fine of $750,000, six months imprisonment under the criminal code, forgery charges. I mean, this is serious, serious stuff. Oh, absolutely. And I expect that if a person was charged and subsequently convicted with something like this, uh, we would see quite a severe penalty because we have an interest in making sure this kind of conduct is denounced and that people are deterred from engaging in this in the future. Yeah. Do you think like if this happens again, you heard in that report that so far it's happened a small number of times, has not been reported to police. If it does happen again, they're saying, well, then maybe next time they'd report it to the police. Is this something, if this happens again, the police should get involved? I think so. I think that this warrants an investigation. I think that we should get to the bottom of it and make sure that this doesn't keep happening. Yeah, Sarah, thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Uh, all right. Welcome back. Here we go now with vaccine mandates in the workplace and hundreds, maybe thousands of Canadians being fired because they are unvaccinated. No jab no job more employers bringing in vaccine mandates more workers being fired and now here we go with the wrongful dismissal lawsuits more people getting fired because they're unvaccinated many of them are suing as a result let's check in with leah moody now managing partner at sam furu to Markin. it's an employment law firm i'm very pleased to welcome her back hi leah Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this today. And it sounds like that the people, the folks in your office are very busy with these wrongful dismissal suits because of vaccine mandates. Is that correct? Absolutely slammed. I mean, we thought that we saw the initial tsunami when COVID first hit almost two years ago now, when people were shutting down and placing people on layoffs. But with the vaccine mandates, it's just a complete, completely different beast. Wow. How many, uh, how many suits is your company handling right now on this? Oh, um, hundreds. Hundreds, yeah. Um, and it just, oh yeah, and it just seems to be growing. I think that what the issue is right now is that a lot of individuals are on an unpaid leave um, and pending some future date where they may or may not be vaccinated and at which point they might be terminated. So I think a lot of employees are, you know, holding back, waiting to be, waiting on leave, to see what happens. Um, and so I imagine that there's going to be hundreds more in a couple of weeks or months from now. Okay, what happens if someone is affected by this and let's say that they're not vaccinated for whatever reason? There are a number of reasons that people don't get vaccinated. Uh, yeah. And then they're told that they're fired as a result. What options do people have? Can they fight back? Well, you know, I think take out the vaccine issue for a second, right? And I think it's really important to remember that your employer can terminate you for any reason at any time that it wants to, as long as it's not discriminatory. And we'll come back to that piece, right? But 
just as if you post something on Facebook that your employer doesn't like or, um, you know, you drive a car your employer doesn't like or you eat egg salad sandwiches in the lunchroom and it's driving everyone crazy, your employer can fire you. Um, they just have to pay you severance, right? Yeah. Um, and that's how you fight it. Just as you would with any other termination, you are entitled to severance and you are entitled to the full uh, range of your severance entitlement. So step number one for any employee who's in this situation is to figure out what those entitlements are and to make sure that you're being provided with them. If you're in the position where you're also, um, the reason why you aren't being vaccinated is a medical um, exemption or religious exemption, which I will say I think is going to be pretty difficult to establish at the Human Rights Tribunal, but if that's the reason why you're not being vaccinated and you've got the proof or documentation to support it, um, then it's possible that it's also a human rights code complaint in addition to the severance dispute. Okay, speaking to Leah Moody, she's an employment lawyer at Samfuru to Market. So let's uh, let's. What about if you work remotely? Like a lot of people are working at home these days. So let's say your job allows you to work at home, but your employer has brought in a vaccine mandate. Does that now exempt you potentially from the vaccine mandate, or would you still have to go along and get vaccinated? Um, no, and not again if we were being terminated with severance, right? So. Um, you know, just as if you had implemented like a perfume policy in the workplace um, and you were at home and never in the workplace, but you wore perfume all the time, your employer could technically terminate you for that because they could terminate you for any silly reason out there as long as they pay you severance. Where this gets complicated for remote workers is where employers are trying to terminate employees for cause. And by that, I mean by giving them no severance. So saying you know, there's something about what you have done by not being vaccinated that has breached the trust in the employment relationship. In some situations, that may be possible to establish. But I think when somebody is working 100% remotely, or even the majority of their time remotely, that's going to be a very, very difficult, if not impossible argument for the employer to be successful on. Is this mostly a, a public sector thing? Like, are the people who are losing their jobs as a result of vaccine mandates, do they normally work in the, in the public sector, or are there private sector workers affected by this too? Isn't that crazy? It's mostly private sector. Yeah, huh. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, as we see more and more, companies seem to be getting, you know, increasingly involved in setting the tone for society, right? Like, they're right up there with government, with sort of, you know, laying down these laws and parameters um, that are meant to send a message more than it's meant to actually be about the workplace. And so you see a lot of private sector employers implementing these vaccine mandates, even though it's not mandated by the government. Um, and oftentimes, either because they're not getting good advice or because they aren't getting advice at all, they're terminating these employees for cause. Yeah. What if, what if you're in a union? Does that make a difference? If it's, uh, can some of this stuff be covered under a, a union contract? It might. Um, you know, I don't know that I don't know that anybody won the bet five years ago about where they'd be in five years from now. So it's hard to imagine yeah. that a, um, a collective bargaining agreement would be addressing something like um, a vaccine mandate. But I can imagine, you know, nurses, for example, the extent that they're covered by a union. Um, you know, you can imagine that vaccines, flu vaccines, things like that are probably things that are covered in the CBA, in which case um, you would possibly have a grievance through your union. Okay. What if you, you, you briefly touched on, let's say someone has a, 
a medical exemption. Let's say they have some rare medical condition. Their doctor advises them don't take the vaccine. Is that an adequate defense against firing under a vaccine mandate that will stand up in court? I mean, your guess is honestly as good as mine right now. I think that we are building this plane as we fly it, right? Um, And there's no law on this particular issue, particularly in the context of what is a very legitimate public emergency. Um, But I think that if you have um, a documented medical opinion that sets out that you cannot get vaccinated and potentially why you cannot be vaccinated and sets out, you know, various ways in which um, your unvaccinated status could be accommodated. So imagine an office worker where everybody is being invited back to the office space um, and the doctor says this individual can't be vaccinated for X, Y, and Z medical reasons. But if they, but you know, if, if they can work from home, that's completely fine. The employer in that situation might legitimately have a duty to accommodate under the human rights code, um, and in that sense, those employees would be protected. Okay, what about a religious exemption? And you touched briefly on that one as well. If someone argues, "Oh, I, I can't get the vaccine; it's against my." religion and i was just reading this morning about south of the border in the united states the u.s marine corps has just granted the first two religious exemptions allowed in the u.s military they had received thousands of requests for religious exemptions in the u.s military and they have just allowed two of them recently are are you aware in canada is there any precedent in canada for allowing a religious exemption Not yet. And I think that it's going to be harder. Um, You know, I think that unlike a medical exemption where there's documentation and things to back it up, um, the religious exemptions are mostly going to be somebody saying this is against my belief system. And some people might have letters from the their religious leaders or whatever the case may be. But I think there's going to be a lot of employers who are approaching that more skeptically. That's not to say that a religious exemption won't be successful in combating a vaccine mandate, but I do think it's going to be um, significantly harder and probably um, a lot more challenged by employers. And what about a personal liberty argument? Just saying like, no, I'm, I'm just choosing not to get this vaccine for whatever reason. It's my personal choice. You can't make me take this vaccine, put this into my body. This is my body. It's my choice. So I'm not taking the vaccine. I mean, you know, does that stand up as an argument in court if you're fired? No. No, No. it doesn't. I mean, I'm telling people who come to me with that with that um, reason that, okay, that's fine. But your choice then is essentially keep your job or or um, don't be vaccinated. Right. Like that is your choice. And that's the choice that you're exercising, because personal choice is not something that's going to be protected by um, by the law. All right, welcome back to the show, talking about vaccine mandates in the workplace with my guest, Leah Moody. She is an employment lawyer with Sam Firu to Markin, and lots of people being fired because of the vaccine mandates, and a lot of them are suing for wrongful dismissal. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Jim in Chilliwack. Hi, Jim, go ahead. Hi, so I have a business. I have separate trucks for employees. One person per vehicle, all equipment's color-coded so it doesn't mix up. Have an employee quit with no reason other than he's scared of the COVID or she's scared of the COVID. Um, We practice 
protocol. We supply masks, sanitation, everything worked for me for 10 years, quit. Do I have any right to go after them for lost uh, income? Um, if you have a contract that provides for a notice of resignation, then potentially you'd have to establish that the early departure of this employee caused you some sort of damage. Um, and, of course, that you were following all of the safety protocols as recommended by the government. Otherwise, she can probably say that it's a, a work refusal uh, based on an unsafe work environment. Okay, Jim, I hope that answers your question. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Rob in Chilliwack. Hi, Rob. Go ahead. Hi, hi good morning, Mike. Good morning uh, to your guests. Uh, say, my question is, first of all, vaccine mandates. I feel we have this country and around the world have opened a can of worms here, and there will be lawsuits. But my question to the gentleman, Mike, is, yeah, I, like, personally, I got the shot. I got both of them, and I did not want to. But if I didn't, and attest to it by the end of this month, I would be placed on leave without pay. I got that shot and I felt like I was under duress getting it, to be 100% honest with you. And I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've got the measles, mumps, rubella, all that kind of stuff. But what happens in a situation where you get the shot and something happens with an adverse reaction, seriously, a serious one, who's responsible for this? Is it, is it uh, the, the company you're working for? Uh, or in my case, I, I happen to work for the federal government. Who's responsible like who? If there's a lawsuit, is it the company? Is it both? How do, how is this going to pan like out? A lot, like a lot. Okay, so it's very rare to have a, a serious adverse reaction to to the vaccine, but it is not impossible. Leah, is there any liability there? Um, I I don't think so, and the reason why is because um, ultimately what this is going to come down to is your choice, right? So unless your employer is chaining you down to a, a tree and sticking the needle into the arm yourself. And you can show that any sort of adverse reaction was directly connected to that. All of those things are going to be very difficult to establish. Um, it's going to be your choice, right? And the choice is, do you want to keep your job? Um, and there's no right to work, right? There's no basic legal entitlement to a job. So if you choose not to work um, and not to be vaccinated, then that's, that's your choice. Okay, Natalie on the line in Poco. Hi, Natalie. Hi. Um, yeah, so a lot of employers, there's, um, they do drug testing on sites, right? So perhaps in order to keep your job, you have, you're forced to go through drug and alcohol treatment. What really is the difference? And perhaps, you know, um, this should be put into law and maybe um, maybe put into effect in um, our education system. If we have youth that are undergoing uh, drug and alcohol issues, maybe they should be forced into treatment in order to complete their education. Okay, okay, if Natalie. Not, well, if, not, if they refuse to go through alcohol, al drug and alcohol treatment then they um, have made a choice not to be educated. Oh, okay, thank you for that. Well, we're, get, we're getting off topic a bit there, I think, but you know, in terms of drug and alcohol testing regimens in the workplace, what are the legalities around that, Leah? Like, let's say, let's say you test positive for, for drug use, you lose your job. Do you have any, uh, do you have any uh, recourse there? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that she raises a really interesting point at the beginning, and it's one that I've made before, which is that you know, drug and alcohol testing is pretty widespread um, and seen to be legally widespread in employers and in industries where people are in safety-sensitive positions. 
And when um, analyzing the legalities of vaccine mandates, a lot of people have been looking to drug and alcohol policies and the law surrounding them um, as a very rough guide. And so I do think, you know, further to our earlier conversation, a lot is going to come down to the industry and whether or not the employer can establish that that mandate, that policy is necessary to keep people safe as a drug and alcohol policy would be, say, on a construction site. Okay, Leah, last question for you. We just have one minute left here. You mentioned earlier that employers have a lot of power to effectively fire you for pretty much any reason, as long as they give you adequate severance, right? Like, does a lot of your work center around that? Like, let's say you do lose your job over a vaccine mandate. Maybe you're not happy about it, but should are, should you be entitled to severance if you are fired? Yes. All yeah, okay. of my work centers around that right now, Mike. Yeah. Um, and it's really, really important to know that a lot of employers are going to try to give you your minimum entitlements under the Employment Standards Act, which maxed out at eight weeks. But you mm. could be entitled to a lot more, including, you know, one month per year that you've been employed there. Okay. What, what's your website if people want to get in touch with you? Uh, employmentlawyers.ca. Right. Okay. Thank you, Leah, for coming on today. Thanks so much, Mike. Let's talk about the Massey Tunnel now. It's one of the most chronically clogged and congested traffic jam points in the lower mainland. If you have to go through that Massey Tunnel frequently, yeah, I feel for you. You have my sympathy there. Those backups, the backlogs, they can be pretty brutal. Now, the government has finally, finally promised to replace the Massey Tunnel with another tunnel. Now, remember the original plan, Plan A was to build a 10-lane bridge over the Fraser River to replace the Massey Tunnel. The NDP government now saying, no, 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 we're cancel that. We're going to build a new tunnel instead. Now let's go back to last August, and here is Transportation Minister Rob Fleming making that announcement. This is an important day for the communities of Richmond and Delta. It's a big day for everyone in Metro Vancouver who uses Highway 99 through the George Massey Tunnel on a regular basis. And today I'm pleased on behalf of the province of British Columbia to announce that we will be building a new eight-lane immersed tube tunnel to replace the George Massey Tunnel on Highway 99. Okay, another tunnel. Well, this one would be an eight-lane tunnel. Right? It's got to be better than what we have now. Let's check in with Ian Payton now, BC Liberal MLA in Delta South. Hey, Ian, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, so the existing Massey Tunnel, the one we have right now, is four-lane tunnel, right? Correct. Now they're going to build an eight-lane tunnel, or is it, or, or is it a six-lane tunnel? How many lanes is the new tunnel? Eight lanes. Eight, eight lanes. So it's so they're doubling it, right? So isn't that a good thing? Well, put it this way. The way things are configured now with rush hour and the um, counterflow lane, yeah, you know, you really have uh, only three lanes moving forward at one given time during rush hour. And one is for HOV only and buses. So you really aren't gaining anything with this eight-lane tunnel over what's existing right now in the old tunnel. And by yeah. the way, Mike, you know, in the last couple of weeks, with all the snow and the rain and the cold, I, I drove through that tunnel a few times. It creeped me out. This dark, dingy old tunnel. Like, oh my goodness! What about the new lights they got in there? <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty, pretty expensive upgrade. That was in the millions of dollars just to put some new lights in the tunnel. Like they just keep doing band aid fixes, you know. Whereas this new bridge, 
Uh, I don't know if you saw, Mike, that, but there was a parody that got brought forward yesterday by a guy with the Daily Hive. It was fantastic. He, he did a mock uh, parody saying the bridge would be open right now in January of 2022. We'd be cutting the ribbon for a new 10-lane bridge. Right. Okay, so let's talk about that because when the Liberals were in government, the previous Liberal government that you were part of, that was plan A, right? Build a 10-lane bridge over the river instead of the tunnel. And the work had actually started on that, right? Absolutely. A hundred million dollars of preload, moving utilities, hydro lines, uh, getting the, uh, the, uh, the big, um, pilings in place that are still sitting, by the way, on the side of the, the tunnel that were going to be driven to support the new bridge. So there was a ton of taxpayers' money completely thrown down the drain when they killed the project. Right. And the, so the construction had started, at least the preliminary work had started there. And the original construction timeline on the bridge, was completion in 2022. So we'd be looking at that bridge opening very soon if they had stuck with the original plan. Absolutely, Mike. Yeah. We, I was thinking probably in the spring, uh, maybe May or June of this year, 2022, would be the official opening of the new bridge. Okay, so that would have been a 10-lane bridge to replace the Massey Tunnel. It would have been opening very soon. That was plan A. Exactly, Mike. And don't yeah. forget, we had plans for down the very middle of the bridge would, would incorporate light rail uh, so yeah. that one day we could bring light rail over that new bridge and connect to South Surrey White Rock or to the Tawasson Ferry Terminal. Okay, the plan as it stands now is a new eight-lane bridge. It was an interesting point you just made because it's an eight-lane tunnel that they're going to build now. But two of those lanes would be dedicated to rapid bus service. So you got buses in two lanes. That leaves six lanes for traffic, three lanes in each direction, which sounds good. But as you mentioned, with the counterflow on the existing Massey Tunnel right now, which is only four lanes, but at any one time with the counterflow, you've already got three lanes of traffic going through that tunnel at you know especially at rush hour exactly so so your exactly. point so your point there is you're not really gaining much new capacity exactly right? mike and our slogan is you're getting less for more, more. with the yeah. ndp with this tunnel i mean the winning bid came in at 2.6 billion dollars which was under our estimated 3.5 billion so the the winning bid was 2.6 billion now they're talking about a tunnel dumped in, into the Fraser River at $4.15 billion is the estimated cost, and they right. have no idea when they're going to get started on it or when it's going to be completed. Well, well, that's the thing. Like, I think the, the budget numbers, I don't know, we start talking in multiple billions, it kind of just becomes meaningless after a point, but $4.15 billion is the new price tag in the new tunnel, and it's not scheduled to be completed until the year 2030. So we're talking like another year, eight years yeah. of, people, of people waiting. What kind of impact is that, does that have, that delay? Well, you know, let's get back to the reality of people's lives, Mike. You know, people that are trying to get home to South Surrey or the opposite direction to get into Richmond or wherever they happen to live. But, you know, their life is being wasted by not making it to their, their daughter's or son's dance class or, or school performance or their soccer match or, or medical appointments. I've heard so many horror stories with people that had medical appointments with specialists over in Richmond or whatever, and because of these fender benders and, and crashes in the tunnel and closures in the tunnel, people have missed like absolutely important uh, medical 
uh, appointments with specialists, and you know what that's like. I mean, yeah. you miss a specialist appointment, they go, hey, well, we, we can fit you in again four months from now. All right, welcome back. Talking about the Massey Tunnel. Now, they, if it stuck with the original plan to build that bridge, it would be opening right about now. That was the original construction timetable on the new Massey Bridge. It was set to open in the spring of 2022. So it would have been right around the corner here. That new bridge would have opened instead uh, the government canceling that, building another tunnel instead that won't open until 2030. What do you think they should have done? Should they have stuck with Plan A? Maybe they should go back to Plan A, build the bridge, scrap the tunnel idea. Phone me on it, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Liberal MLA Ian Payton is my guest. Victor in Burnaby. Hi, Victor, what do you think? Yeah, this is totally ludicrous. On capital projects of this magnitude, when a government, whoever it might be in power, makes that decision to proceed with it, because there's so many timelines that are involved in the costs, it should still be the same project, even if a new government comes in. It's a total waste of money. How many, we, what is it, $100 million have already been down the drain because of this? When does it end? My God, government, nothing will ever get done if this is the case on capital projects. Okay, Victor, thank, thanks for the call. How much money was spent already on the bridge, Ian? Well, we figure probably close to $100 million. You know, remember, Mike, all the preloaded sand on the side of the highway? Like millions of dollars worth of sand alone that, that you know, had to be removed once they canceled the project. Was, was there any value at all to taxpayers in some of that original work? And any of that original work be used for the new you know, the new bridge project, or is that all just money down the drain? The only value at all was, um, well, a lot of people lost jobs. Like, there was a lot of people working, uh, moving utilities, driving the piles, getting ready to build this bridge. The only value is the sand that got trucked out of there finally, and it's been taken over to a project up in North Delta near the Alex Fraser Bridge and the Patel Bridge. And by the way, these clowns have um, are replacing the Patel Bridge, a four-lane bridge, with another four-lane bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, I think we needed a bigger bridge there. Bob, uh, Rob in Richmond. Hi, Rob. Hey, Mike. Thanks for the, taking my call. Appreciate sure. it. Yeah. Uh, we used we use the tunnel multiple times a day. Our kids go to school south of the uh, Fraser, and we live north of the Fraser. This is unconscionable on two levels. First. It was a politicization from day one. Horgan and the NDP got into power. It was red seats all around the tunnel, no orange. They prioritized Patello, which is orange country and swing, swing ridings for them. And they didn't care about the $100 million. It was all about them driving decisions for their own benefit. It's a disgusting display, once again, of politicians that, that have no interest in good policy. That's number one. Number two... Are you kidding me? There was 18,000 pages of research done over 15 years that yeah. ended up with a 10-lane bridge. We're talking about infrastructure for the next 50 to 60 years. I live in Richmond. The worst bottleneck in the lower mainland is the Ironwood Mall area, and they were going to go at grade interchange to get all that traffic in and out of the industrial park. This tunnel does nothing to that. It doesn't solve that problem. It's okay. a joke. Okay, Rob, thank you for the call. we got lots of calls here. Let's try and squeeze a bunch of them in. Nathan on the line in Delta. Nathan, go ahead. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I've been involved in heavy civil and heavy industrial con uh, construction for over 25 years. If you think that this project, this, this tunneling operation, is going to stay at $2.2 billion, 
um, the politicians are fooling themselves. Well, it's and, four point. Wait, wait a sec. Wait a sec. It's four point one five billion is the price tag for oh, this new tunnel. Yeah, even still, it's not going to happen. Every every boring operation will exceed their budget by at least fifty percent, and it's especially if they bring up American contractors like uh, Bechtel or Kiewit. Okay, thank thank you for that. Well, I don't think it's a. I, I don't think it's a boring operation either. I don't think they're tunneling under the river. I think they're taking a big tube and sinking it to the bottom of the river. Is that correct, Ian Payton? Yeah, exactly. Boring is what they did for the the uh, you know the Canada line down Camby Street and whatnot. Uh, this is actually concrete tube sections that will be dropped one by one and connected together in the bottom of the tunnel like they did in 1959. But you don't do that in 2022 or 2030 or 2030 or whatever. I mean, environmentally, I cannot see the NDP ever getting this environmental assessment passed to plunk a concrete tube in the Fraser River with salmon, sturgeon, and all the, the marine life. Yeah, that's the other wild card here that I'm wondering about is the environmental impact of this thing. Ken, in, or let's go to Nathan in Delta. Hi, Nathan. Oh, sorry, I already talked to Nathan. Sorry. I'm losing it here. Ken in South Surrey. Hi, Ken. Now, I remember years ago uh, having coffee with Linda Reed, who was a friend of mine, and, and said, if the Liberals want to put a bridge in, the NDP will want to put a tunnel. If the Liberals wanted a tunnel, the NDP would have, would have put a bridge. Right. And I think <laughs> yeah. they're, they're going to they're gonna drag this thing on until the next election and use it as a carrot and say, well, maybe after all, we might want to consider because of Aboriginal uh, impact or whatever, environmental impact that uh, maybe we should build a, a bridge. But it's absolute insanity, and it's cost the taxpayers an outrageous amount of money. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just shocked by it. And I, I, I originally I thought the bridge was the way to go, and I still think it is. And I, I don't drive through there unless I have to, but I don't know what, what, I don't know what they're thinking, you know, uh, because well, you need... Well, thank you, thank you, Ken, for the call. Well, they they argue that they're doing what the local mayors want, Ian Payton. That the local mayors had asked for a tunnel and not another bridge, right? Yeah. Well, which to me is very comical. I mean, which one of the local mayors has any kind of a civil engineering degree on building bridges? Like, I mean, are you kidding me? The government goes to the local mayors and said, "Hey, could you guys decide whether we should have a bridge or a tunnel?" And most of these mayors have probably never even been through the tunnel because they live in Coquitlam and Burnaby and North Vancouver. Like, that was a complete hmm. joke. Okay, Greg on the line in Richmond. Hi, Greg. Go ahead. Well, hi there. Um, yeah, the whole thing with between the tunnel and uh, 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 the uh, Lane Bridge, um, yeah. you're, you're going to fix the problem, yeah, or at least somewhat. If bridge probably would have been better. But now you're going to take all those people sitting in traffic, sitting in Delta, and you're just going to have them sitting in traffic before the Oak Street and the Knight Street bridges. They're only two lanes. Take a look at the backup that shows up there now when you don't have all the traffic that's going to flow through in the new bridge. Okay, I've heard, that, argu I've heard that argument before. Ian Payton, how do you answer that? 
Well, the answer to that is like everything else. I mean, you can't fix everything at all once. So let's fix one thing at a time. But, you know, statistics, and I've seen all the statistics over the years where they did studies to see that like 65% of the traffic that goes through the tunnel actually exits in Richmond at some point in Richmond or over to the east-west connector, or they go over to get onto the Knight Street Bridge. So it's not all the traffic that's actually ending up at the Oak Street Bridge. Ian, thank you for coming on today. Mike, anytime. Thanks, man. Happy New Year.